Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, the author of As American as Shoe Fly Pie, William Woyes Weaver. William Woyes Weaver, author of As American as Shoe Fly Pie, The Food Lore and Fake Lore of Pennsylvania Dutch Cuisine. What do you mean, fake lore? Fake lore is a word that has been bouncing around for about 40 years in, uh, in the folklore community. Uh, fake lore is um, made up myths about the origins of food, culture, anything, that sort of thing. Can you give me an example? Uh, I could um, pick out one from the book. That would be uh, the Pennsylvania Dutch, the Amish, invented the seven sweets and seven sours. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is a good example of fake lore because it was created in a hotel in the early 1900s by a hotel keeper in uh, Skipack, uh, Pennsylvania. And it started out uh, that they would do uh, meals throughout the week. And you have to remember, Skipack was on the end of a trolley line. So people could come out from the city uh, for a meal in this country hotel and then go back to the city at night. So to, to lure them out, um, the hotel would have uh, a special sweet dish and a special uh, sour pickle with each meal. And then on Sundays, they put all seven together. And that was the special sit-down table d'hote, as you will. And uh, in the 20s, this idea, and I think it was Governor Pennypacker who started um, reinventing it, if you will, as a, a Pennsylvania Dutch uh, food specialty uh, because by the 20s you start to see it in tourist literature and then by the 30s it's an Amish invention. So that's what we call fake lore. It, it, it was totally created for commercial reasons and it's become a cultural, well, a reality now. Why is there such a, an appeal for tourism with the Pennsylvania Dutch and the Amish? Um, that is basically the, the theme of my book on, on what tourism has done to this culture. Uh, it wasn't always uh, focused on the Amish, and that's what I go into in, in the book, what I call the Amish table. Uh, that is a very complicated story, and, and that's something I take up in a series of, of essays. But to, to simplify it, during the 30s, once uh, Hitler came to power in Germany, uh, the Pennsylvania Dutch were really very worried about how they would be perceived by the rest of the America. Uh, they had gone through World War I with a terrible experience because there was a lot of anti-German feelings. So uh, they began to look around for cultural symbols that were not German. And the Amish were obviously not goose-stepping German soldiers. They were pacifist farmers. Um, sort of the peace and plenty, golden ideal of the past. So 
The tourist uh, industry latched onto the Amish in the 30s. Oh, by 37, it's, it has blossomed. Uh, and the more terrible things that happened in Europe, the more this Amish thing kept ballooning here in the States. So uh, there was a restaurant in, in Lancaster called the uh, German Village, and it was one of those uh, sort of um, oh, faux Ratzkeller type places where the tourists went to eat. And um, this is where the Amish tourist idea began. They started putting Amish people on the covers of their menus. They had a gift shop, and they would have Amish memorabilia, Amish men and women bookends, uh, cookie cutters shaped like Amish kids, that, that kind of thing. So, uh, and then Hitler invaded Poland in 1939, and they dropped German from the German village. It was just the village. And then, bang, uh, this Amish thing. They have Amish food. Uh, it, it just takes over. And uh, I think the, once the war broke out, the Amish image became a symbol of the Pennsylvania Dutch feeding the home front. It was a patriotic uh, symbol. So uh, that was a very useful image. But then it stayed with us. And, and I think the problem, one of the things I had to overcome with this book, uh, a lot of publishers looked at the manuscript and thought, well, we don't want to do a book about the Amish. Well, it's not about the Amish. It's about food tourism, really, and, and the Pennsylvania Dutch in general. But what happened is that the uh, Amish uh, symbol became a symbol of Pennsylvania Dutch. So if you go to California, uh, if I give a lecture out there and I've done this, and I say, I'm Pennsylvania Dutch, I'm 13th generation, well, how come I don't have a beard and a straw hat? You're not Amish. No, I'm not, because the Amish are only about, well, 4% of the total Pennsylvania Dutch population. And I'm speaking of the people who came from Switzerland and uh, southwest Germany, Swabia, they were about 40% of the population of Pennsylvania. A lot of people have Pennsylvania Dutch names and they don't know they're Pennsylvania Dutch because they don't speak the language anymore. But one of the points that I make in my book it, is as long as they keep up the cooking, they keep up their Dutch identity. And what's the core to that? Sauerkraut. You talk about that, how yeah. that's the thread that ties it all ties together. It all together. Uh, why sauerkraut? Well, uh, as I put it in, uh, in the book, it's, it's the point of a, of a phalanx of dishes, if you will, that keeps the cultural identity alive. So if you're eating sauerkraut more or less three and four times a month, you're most likely also to have pork dish with it or sausage or something else that's also Pennsylvania Dutch. And so it, it's like a magnet. It, 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 it attracts all of these other, other dishes with it. So it, it's not just a single thing. It's, it's a unit, if you will. And, and actually, when I wrote this book, I thought, I'm writing this book for the Pennsylvania Dutch. And if you're stranded on an island anywhere and you want to keep your cultural identity, you've got it all right here, because you've got the story, and then you've got the recipes in the back. And when you talk about Pennsylvania Dutch, can you define who you're talking about? Well, uh, the Pennsylvania Dutch are a complicated group because they're, they're not like the, uh, the Cajuns who are like, uh, monocultural in, in, in Louisiana. It's, it's very easy to identify Cajuns because they have the same religion, they speak the same Cajun language, and they have a, a similar food. The Pennsylvania Dutch are, well, the Pennsylvania Dutch region of Pennsylvania 
includes many counties, uh, and I have a map on my website which shows it. But anyway, it's about the same size as Switzerland in terms of square miles. Now, when you think of the diversity of Switzerland, we've got the same thing here. And so when I talk about the Pennsylvania Dutch in Montgomery County, Pennsylvania, and then the Pennsylvania Dutch in Somerset, I'm talking about two different groups. They cook differently. They've, they've got a different mindset, but they're still Pennsylvania Dutch. So uh, by Dutch, I'm talking about people who came here in the uh, 18th and 19th century, settled in Pennsylvania. Uh, the primary uh, cultural milieu would be German Reformed or Lutherans. They're the majority. Then we have, uh, you might say, the Swiss third. We've got Mennonites. We've got Swiss Reformed. There were Swiss Protestants, Presbyterians, more or less Calvinists. And, and uh, among the Mennonites, we've got that small break-off group, the Amish. So uh, and then we've got the Moravians who settled in uh, Lehigh and um, around Easton and Bethlehem. So we have all these different religious groups, and they don't all get along together very well. Um, so uh, s the Moravians don't consider, the, many of them don't consider themselves Pennsylvania Dutch. You have a scene in your book where you're doing a book signing, and a woman comes up and says, we are not. Pennsylvania Dutch, we're Moravians. Yeah, we're Germans. Uh, and and that, that whole issue goes into, well, what's, what, what, what do we call ourselves as a culture? Um, I mean, some people say Pennsylvania German, and I, I don't like that because uh, the culture is, is not German anymore. They stopped being Germans when they got off the boat. Uh, and they came here because they didn't want to be Germans. And when they came here, there wasn't a Germany. You know, there was the, the, the Duke of B uh, Württemberg or, or whatever. They identified with these regional cultures. And the language that evolved here, uh, which we call Pennsylvania or Pennsylvania Dutch or Pennsylvania Dutch in, in its own tongue, uh, is a language that uh, coalesced from all these different regional dialects in German and is now considered a language of its own. Uh, unfortunately, the state of Pennsylvania wanted to stamp out this culture because they figured that they wouldn't make good Americans if they didn't speak English. So the school system uh, uh, was set up in the 1840s to break up the parochial schools where German and Pennsylvania Dutch was spoken. And uh, then the state normal school system was set up to train teachers so that they would promote English only in the schools. And so this whole idea of who are we was, uh, it was difficult because they were not part of the rest of the United States, if you will, and the, the general American uh, culture. They spoke this different language, and they don't have a really good label for themselves yet because we, we don't know, um, we have, no one's really agreed on what to call this culture, and I think the, the, uh, the the Cajuns are lucky because they've got one word. It's very simple. Everyone knows who they are. But when you say Pennsylvania Dutch or Pennsylvania German, you have to stop and explain. Uh, the word Dutch uh, I prefer because, well, I don't want to use Pennsylvania German. because and Anyway, I'm 13th generation Pennsylvania Dutch, but I have no German background. All my people came from Switzerland. So I mean, what does German have to do with me? Uh, so I use Pennsylvania Dutch because that's the old English word for people from the Rhineland.
my ancestors came from Switzerland, so they were called High Dutch. They were from the upper end. The Low Dutch were from Holland. And that was the, the old uh, medieval English perspective of, of continental Germans, if you will. So, and Shakespeare used the word Dutch, a Dutchman. You'll find it in his liter in his writings. And referring to Germans. To Germans in general or anyone who speaks that, that kind of language that sounds that way, all right? Because ho uh, the Holland Dutch, even the Flem Flemish, they were called Dutchmen. Anyhow, I, I prefer that just simply because it's, uh, it's an easy way out at, at the moment, but I, I, I think the culture needs another name. Uh, the thing that makes, uh, that makes my book stand out, I think, is that I'm one of the first people to, um, to, to point out that it's an American culture. It's not uh, Germany imported to America and, and kept, you know, like a butterfly in amber type of thing, preserved like some piece of 18th century Europe. It's not. It has evolved here, and even the Amish, we think a lot of people who are not Amish think of them as 18th or 19th century holdovers, but the Amish women wear bonnets that they copied from the Quakers. You know, they make quilts, but they didn't make quilts in Europe. They borrowed that idea from Americans. So everything uh, that, that is part of the Pennsylvania Dutch culture, the material culture, the food, it's all been ass uh, assimilated from the outside and then retread, reinvented. So going to the title of your book, Shoe Fly Pie, if, if you go over to Germany, can you find shoe fly pie? You anywhere? will not find shoe fly pie. That's the point. We've got all of these foods now which are part of our culinary culture that you won't find in Germany. And even the German-sounding names uh, for some of like, the dumplings that we make, but uh, they, they, may, they have an origin from southwest Germany, perhaps, but the, the way we make them is entirely different. I mean, we use cornmeal. We've got all of these native ingredients, chinkapins, wild uh, chestnuts, and uh, hickory nuts, and all of these wonderful American ingredients that are part of the food. You don't find that in Germany at all. You start off your book saying, easy fast food fare has been conjoined with Dutchification in the matter of culinary Siamese twins to create a tourist cuisine that has come to exemplify the worst of gooey tourist trap shoe fly pies or more generally the ambiguous and overly saccharine food of family style restaurants proclaiming the Amish experience. This is a tale of kitsch begetting kitsch. Right. Off to a strong start. <laughs> well. When I, I'm passionate about what I do, so I'm passionate about what I write. Uh, in fact, I designed the cover of the book uh, using uh, tourist kitsch. Uh, you might say as the bait to get people to pick up the book, uh, and then once uh, I draw them in to, to, to read the story and, and see how it's all fallen together. Uh, Shoe Fly Pie was created here in the United States, in fact, the story is it was created in 1876 at the U.S. Centennial here in Philadelphia. Its first name was Centennial Cake. And it wasn't baked in a pie shell, it was a cake. It was baked in a cake pan. So it has evolved it, it, itself. Um, but it's totally American. You say there was, there was no uh, shoe fly pie before the Civil War? Right. And it's a, it's a breakfast cake. Indeed, it's a breakfast cake. It was meant to be ta uh, eaten with coffee in the morning, 4.30, 5 o'clock when you came in for breakfast, because you've already gotten up to check on things in the barn. So you had a big sit-down breakfast, and you, and you ate this cake. And of course, it's, it's a lot of sugar, so you get your carbs there <laughs> and, 
energy for the morning. Uh, it, actually, the best shoofly pie is also made with coffee instead of boiling water. So you use old, strong coffee. So it has a, a nice coffee background taste to it. Is there something inherently bad in tourist kitsch? No, it's, uh, well, some people get offended by all of this. Uh, uh, and I think there are a lot of people in Lancaster who come up to me quietly and say, oh, Dr. Weaver, have you seen that awful story? And I'm thinking, no, it's a reflection of what we are and who we are as a culture and how we, how we see things. Uh, there's a restaurant uh, and a gift shop on Route 30 in Ronks, um, Dutch Haven, and it's a big windmill. I mean, it's painted yellow and it says Amish stuff. It's, it's the crown jewel of Lancaster's kit, but I think it's a, it's, it's a wonderful piece to be preserved. Uh, it's, it's, it's not awful. Uh, it, it absolutely accompli accomplishes what it was set out to do, to make you stop and look and go in. How can anything be like that? I mean, you, you can't believe it. You have to go and see it. So, I mean, it, it's, it accomplishes its, 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 uh, it, the, the reason it was invented. Uh, the, 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 problem, the problem that we've got with the Pennsylvania Dutch culture is that the kitsch part of it has probably overtaken the, the real core. And that's what I go into in my book. The, 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 the real food that nobody sees in restaurants is still made at home. And it's rather difficult to um, transform that food into restaurant-style cooking. And what what has been tr transformed it hasn't been done very well. What we probably need is a culinary school that specializes in regional cooking and to teach kids how to make the classic dishes and then they can create from that and, and carry, carry the food into the future with its own identity. That's what's happened in France, in, in Alsace. Uh, our core cuisine is very close to the kind of food you would find in rural France. I mean, we have stuffed pig stomach, they have stuffed pig stomach. Uh, of course, we do it differently than they do, but the, the, uh, the young chefs take that um, uh, country dish, if you will, it was only made during butchering season in the winter, and they put it on three-star menus, Michelin three-star menus, and they serve it in really upscale ways. And that's one of my hopes with this book, that I'm going to inspire some chefs out there to, to take the core uh, cookery, which I, I very, very carefully selected the recipes. There are about 60 of them in the back. You've got that. You've got the basic training ground for, for Pennsylvania Dutch cuisine. And in fact, I'm going to be working with uh, a chef. Andrew Little is from uh, uh, Hanover, Pennsylvania, and he was a chef in a, in a hotel out there, and he was doing high-end Pennsylvania Dutch cookery. And um, he got a hold of my book, and of course he felt really happy because here was somebody now vindicating everything that he'd been standing up for. And uh, I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not a good chef. I mean, I can cook. I've gotten cookbook awards because I can cook, but I'm not a good chef because I do not have the patience to get in the kitchen and, and just work my butt off turning out food. Um, but I, I can be a good coach for chefs, and I think I'm going to, that's probably one of the good things that's going to come out of this book, is that I'm going to be developing relationships with a number of chefs, and we're going to take the cuisine and make, make it high end. Well, you do have a lot of recipes in your book. How did you decide what was authentic and what was not? Well. 
That's a good question. I suppose I myself acted as a, as a filter because I grew up with Pennsylvania Dutch cooking, and I mean very good Pennsylvania Dutch cooking. But I interviewed people. I've interviewed over mm, 220, 225 individuals who cook, and I in interviewed them for their food memories. And sort of sifting through all of that, I was able to, to discern patterns and what, what really was part of the core cuisine and what wasn't. And that's how I came really to the conclusion about uh, sauerkraut. Because one thing all of these people had in common was sauerkraut that sort of pulled them together. And so using that field work, I was able to sort of sift through. And of course, I couldn't have as many recipes as I wanted and to cut out a lot of them. But I, I have, I think, a pretty good selection of, of what's authentic. And there are some also some recipes that are what we call the new Dutch cuisine. In the 1920s, sort of a, as a counter movement to this Amish thing, there were people even then who were trying to uh, reinvent the cookery and take it high end into restaurants. Uh, it didn't get very far because the Amish thing took over, if you will. But uh, I, f I have found a number of recipes from these people. There was even a, uh, a society, uh, what do they call themselves, the Pennsylvania German Gourmands or something of that kind. Uh, and H.L. Mencken was part of this group. And uh, the, some very interesting uh, people got together and were going to make a movement. But it, I guess the, the Depression came, and then, of course, the war. And one thing after another just interfered with that. So I think we're going to revive this idea of, of Nydeich. Is, is sauerkraut still made at home very much? Indeed it is. How, what's the process? I make it myself. Um, the process is ra rather simple. In fact, I, in my book, I have my great-grandfather's, great-great-grandfather's recipe for, for making sauerkraut. I uh, don't use his crocs because he used 20-gallon crocs, or big and you can't move them once they've got sauerkraut in there. But essentially, what you do is you get, uh, well, you get very good cabbage. I think it's cabbage that's got to have a high water content in it. So you're looking for very uh, heavy, dense heads of cabbage. There's, there are several varieties that are good for this. You shred it very fine, and, uh, and then you put it in, I use three-gallon crocs. You put it in the, in the crocs, pound it, bruise it so it gets a little juicy, then you scatter salt on this, do another layer, and you just keep doing that until it's full. I put in a little spring water as well to give it so there's a slurry there, and then you let it work in a warm place until it gets very stinky, and that takes about, oh, depends on the weather, five to ten days. And then uh, you have to have a weight on it so that it's pushed down, and then it sinks lower and lower under this weight and then liquid forms on the top. Uh, what, what's going on there is, is a, um, an enzyme change and there's a, there is a very slow, um, it's, it's lactic acid at work. So it's the same kind of fermentation you get when you're turning milk into cheese and uh, in fact on a good uh, crock of sauerkraut you will get on the top a white uh, mold, a scum that forms, and that's very good. It's a good sign. And it's exactly like that fuzzy uh, mold that you get on brie, French cheese. So it's the same kind of uh, uh, 
enzymes and the same kind of uh, uh, molds that are at work ca causing this fermentation. And then the uh, oh, in about a month and a half to two months, the, the sauerkraut's ready to eat. And you can just pull it out of the crock, or what I do is I take it and freeze it. I take it out, put it in freezer bags, and put it in my freezer so I have it all year long. Sauerkraut was only eaten in cold weather, by the way, years ago. It's one of those things that's totally lost its seasonality because of, well, you can make sauerkraut now and can it, and you can go to the store and get it in, in the supermarkets all year round. So, Does it take any particular skill? I mean, is it, are there people who can make good sauerkraut and not, or can things go wrong during the fermentation? Things can go wrong during the fermentation for sure, and that's what I think scare a lot of people away from sauerkraut. Um, I make very good sauerkraut, but I, I, kn I know, I taste it while it's fermenting, so I know where it's going, if you know, if you know what I mean. It's almost... Uh, um, like the guy in the winery, testing the wines to see whether where they're headed. And oh no, we may need some more sugar. We may need some more whatever. Uh, I do that with my sauerkraut. Um, there is a, a a fellow. I mentioned him in my in my um, acknowledgments. Um, he's an antique dealer up in uh, Columbia County, Pennsylvania. Donald Davis. I'd like to mention his name because he is. Uh, you might say one of the silent uh, uh, figures behind this book, over the years, he has gotten me equipment and he has, uh, all the things that I've been looking for in the t way of old kitchen tools. But he makes sauerkraut, Donald Davis. Now that doesn't sound like a Pennsylvania Dutch name. They go out in the fields, the cabbage fields, after the, the harvest and they pick up all of this leftover cabbage and they make his family makes sauerkraut with it. It's the best sauerkraut in Pennsylvania. I don't know what they do. They do the same thing I do. It's a salt, mash it up. They've got some sort of touch. I, I don't know what it is, but I, I keep telling them they should go into the sauerkraut business because there's some kind of magic that happens in their house. And the sauerkraut is just wonderful. It is so delicate. It's unbelievable. Does yours turn out the same every time, or do you have different kind of recipes that you use? I have different recipes. Uh, basically, if I just do the sauerkraut, the cabbage, uh, it turns out the same, provided I use the same kind of cabbage, the same variety. But I also make sauerkraut with uh, shredded carrots in it, shredded turnips, onions. So uh, it's a completely different creature when, when, when that ferments because you're getting this almost uh, sauerkraut salad, if you will, and it's wonderful. It's really uh, very tasty. It's not so cabbagey. I think some people don't like that strong uh, cabbage taste. It has these other moderating flavors in it. How, how um, cohesive or healthy is the Pennsylvania Dutch culture or, uh, or is, and compared to, the, say, the Cajuns, or is it being kind of assimilated out of existence? Well, for one thing, the basic recipes, uh, like shawlis, which is a, a, a baked dish, it's, um, it's done in a shawlis pan, that's where it gets its name. It's a, fl a very flat, uh, either cast iron or, or uh, earthenware, and you bake dishes in this. They're, they're a little bit like a quiche, if you will, but it doesn't have to have eggs in it or or anything, it can have just to be a mixture of vegetables. Those are very light and very um, health conscious dishes. 
the, the Dutch didn't eat a lot of meat except in the wintertime, and that's when they, they butchered. So the, let's put it this way, the traditional diet was very healthy. And you can still see this uh, effect if you go into, uh, let's say, an Old Order Mennonite uh, meeting, a, a religious service. I, I attended some of these. These are the horse and buggy Mennonites. They're not Amish. They don't have beards. Um, the men don't have beards. You go in there and you sit among these people and there is no obesity whatsoever. The kids and, the, and the, even some of the adults come in in bare feet. They're very healthy people and they're eating uh, food from their, their own gardens. Uh, that traditional type of diet was, was healthy. What's happened is the, the Pennsylvania Dutch, like everyone else, uh, we've got fast foods, we've got the, the, the supermarkets have come in. So since the 60s and 70s, uh, the diet has really changed a lot and not for the better. And I, I think when you go to the Kutztown Folk Festival, you can see a number of overweight people there, and they're eating all this fried stuff, which really wasn't part of the culture at all. Fried food was only made at, uh, on, uh, like, Fasnachs were fried, but that was only one day a year, you know, on Fat Tuesday, b right before Lent. Uh, so uh, our, diets, uh, our diet has changed a great deal, and, but I think following the same curve as the rest of um, America, unfortunately. Don't a lot of their sausages have a lot of fat in it? Well, sausages do, but you can make, you can make sausages with potatoes. You don't, have to, you, you don't have to have dead animals in your sausage. You can, you can make all kinds of vegetarian dishes. Uh, is, is Scrapple a Pennsylvania Dutch thing? Scrapple is an interesting story. I did a book on Scrapple called Country Scrapple an American tradition because what I discovered is that there are scrapples all over the place but they don't they're not always called scrapple for example uh, in North Carolina there's a dish called liver mush it's not a, I think it's even worse than scrapple <laughs> in terms of <laughs> names name. liver mush <laughs> is is their scrapple okay uh, scrapple schrapple, that's the way you pronounce that word uh, is a dialect word from Northwest Germany and I'm talking about Westphalia um, right up against Holland. So it's a very guttural dialect. And that's where this, this dish originates. The rest of the Pennsylvania Dutch who came here, like my ancestors from Switzerland, they didn't know anything about Scrapple. Uh, what happened was there were some uh, Mennonites and Quakers who settled Germantown, and they came from that area, Krefeld, in Germany, and they brought the Scrapple tradition with them. They made it here in Philadelphia in the 1680s and 1690s. So it became, you might say, one of the indigenous dishes right away. And, and from that little group, this dish moved, was acculturated, that's the word for it. It moved out into the Pennsylvania Dutch community. And, and there were, they used the, the dialect word panhas for it. And panas or panas is the word that's used in, in Krefeld for, for uh, for Scrapple. So it had two names. It had this Dutch name uh, and it had this uh, Krefeld, uh, uh, Westphalian name, Panas, which is actually a Kel Celtic word. A Scrapple is a Celtic dish. It's not German at all. It, it was there before the Germans came to Germany. All right. So it has a long, interesting, and complicated history. And the, 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 the joke of it is it's become a Pennsylvania Dutch identity food but it wasn't originally something Pennsylvania Dutch. And this is another thing that, that, that startles Germans when they come to Pennsylvania. 
They go to a restaurant and they see Scrapple on the menu. What is this Scrapple? What is this? Don't, we don't know what it, it's not part of our cuisine. So you see right there, we've got something that, that was in only a very small area of Germany that now has, it's, it's more widespread in Pennsylvania than it is in, in Germany. You have to go to places like Münster or up in that little northwest corner of, of Westphalia to a specialized restaurant that, that serves regional foods to get their panas or scrapple. Do you eat it? Yeah, I make it. You do. Is it? Does it has a reputation as being just kind of the sweepings off the floor? But this reputation is crazy because scrapple is really rather healthy. Um, one reason that Pennsylvania Dutch never ended up getting uh, nutritional problems, like in in the South, vitamin B deficiency and all of that, because the Appalachian uh, mountain people only ate cornmeal and they weren't getting the vitamins that way. Well, the Dutch were very healthy because they were getting well. There's liver in it. There's pork liver in in the in the scrapple. Scrapple is made from, after you've butchered your pig, you've got a carcass, so you've got bones with meat on it. You boil that and you make a broth. The meat comes off the broth, off the bones, into the broth, and then you can add to that whatever you want. And basically, uh, farm families would put the pork liver in. They liked that liver flavor, but you don't have to add that. That is essentially what the scrapple is. That, that's the only meat in it. It's not very fatty. If you want it to be fatty, you have to add fat to it. Then what you do is you take that meat, grind it up, put it back in the broth, and then thicken it with cornmeal and buckwheat. And that's, it's a pot pudding. It was originally served hot in a bowl, and you serve that as a porridge to the people who helped you butcher. So it was just something made for butchering day. And then if you want to keep it for any length of time, you pour that porridge into a, a pan and let it set. And then you've got something to eat for the rest of the week. But you know, remember, we're talking about days without refrigeration. So it's only something you ate during cold weather. Let me ask you about a couple of the other foods you talk about, and some are popular and some are not so popular. First of all, um, chicken pot pie. That's right. That's not Pennsylvania Dutch at all. It's not? No, it's a common American dish. Um, the only Dutch thing about chicken pot pie that you might get out in the Dutch country is adding a large square noodle in it rather than a pie crust. But the, um, the idea of doing pies in pots is medieval English. It, it's an American. It's a general Anglo-American dish. Um, it was the kind of food that you, you served in boarding houses and in hotels here in Philadelphia uh, to the farmers who came in had to stay the night because they were doing market the next day, that sort of thing. So it was a real sort of lowbrow, uh, blue-collar food in, in, um, in early America. And it was one of those uh, dishes that you could serve to, to work hands. If you had a lot of people to feed at a farm, you could put this pot pie out and it would feed you know, 20 guys. And so in the 1890s and the turn of the century, uh, people who were writing about Pennsylvania Dutch culture got really nostalgic about pot pie. And they included this as one of the, you might say, icon foods. But it was a general American thing. It, and it, it came into the culture sort of that way. It was just something assimilated on the same, on the same scale as chow chow. Everyone thinks that chow chow, chow chow, let's define it first. It's, um, a pickle of mixed vegetables, all sorts of odds and ends from the garden, and you put it together in the fall. 
Uh, chow chow comes from India. The word isn't even an American word. Uh, so how does this end up as a Pennsylvania Dutch? It's, it's in every Pennsylvania Dutch market as a Pennsylvania Dutch identity food. Well, chow chow was sold, imported from India, made in England, and sold in high-end hotels in this country in the 1860s and 70s. You'll find it on menus where they have all of these uh, uh, condiments, as they call them, that they serve with the meals. When canning jars came in and people were started to use these glass jars to can at home, all the, all the old cookbooks have chow chow and, and, and these recipes in them because now you too can make this, you see. And chow chow worked for the Pennsylvania Dutch because at the end of the season, if you have a big garden like I do, you've got some leftover beans. You may have a head of cauliflower, whatever. You've got all this stuff. Frost is tomorrow morning or whatever, and so you've got to pick it and find a way to, to, to use it without wasting it. Chow chow's perfect. So it's just like uh, shoe fly pie. That caught on among the Dutch because it has no eggs. Therefore, you're saving money. You're, the leavener in it is baking powder or baking soda. You're using um, molasses, cheap. Chow chow is the same thing. It's cheap. So the, the, the foods like uh, chow chow and shoe fly pie and chicken pot pie, they made their way into the Dutch cuisine because they were cheap. It's very simple. They're frugal. <laughs> waffles. Waffles, yes. Well, the Pennsylvania Dutch didn't invent waffles, but they certainly invented chicken and waffles. And everyone thinks this is an African-American um, creation, but it's not. Uh, waffles were brought over here they were, uh, by both the Dutch, who settled in New York, and the, and the Pennsylvania Dutch, or the Germans who came to Pennsylvania. But it was a very special thing. You only made waffles at Christmas or New Year's or something like that. Because first of all, you've got eggs, you've got, you've got ingredients in there, expensive flour. It's an expensive thing. Uh, what happened was the, the uh, chicken and waffle story, I, I have a, a, a whole chapter in my book on this because I think there's a book waiting to be written. Uh, there's a big story out there on this whole chicken and waffle, uh, the way it has evolved in the United States in any event. But I guess ground zero is Philadelphia because it starts, the earliest reference we have are to the catfish and waffle houses that were on the Schuylkill River. And you made catfish and waffle dinners out of this. And that was one of two ways. Either you had fried catfish with a side of waffles, or you had catfish gravy over waffles. And, uh, and the waffles don't have sugar in them, so they're, it's not a sweet dish, it's a savory. So that be, that's like putting gravy over toast, except you're using a waffle. And people went out of their way for Sunday dinners to go to these catfish and waffle houses. There was a rare, very famous one at the falls of the Schuylkill, up on the Schuylkill River. Um, and they had famous dinners even as early as the 1830s, or advertising in the newspapers. So this catfish and waffle thing was very seasonal, however, because they were only open from May to October. It was a summer, a summer thing. And the, these catfish and waffle houses were located in woodsy places along the water. So they were, they were very pleasant to go to in the heat of the summer. Uh, there would often be a band playing music. So there was a, there was a whole atmosphere of, of uh, and it was a, a sort of a happy place to go, and the, and the catfish and waffle houses were, um, the, the prices of the menus were fixed so that you could get an elaborate menu or 
for less than that you could just get a few dishes and so a lot of poor people working people would go to these places because they knew what they were going to get for their money and they could also order like Chinese uh, uh, restaurant style you could all sit down and you would have the same table and you could all order different things and then share so if you if you don't have a lot of money to spend, it was like the best place to go to 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 go out for dinner rather than in a hotel or in a restaurant here in Philadelphia, which most of them were really very stuffy and uh, different kind of people went there. These were really where you could kick off your shoes and be comfortable. Well, someone got the broad idea that well, wait a minute, if we've got a country hotel and we want people to come out here in the winter, we don't have catfish. Why not serve chicken? And you. Just, so it was just a substituting chicken for catfish. When did it become a breakfast thing with maple syrup on it? Oh, uh, that, that's a parallel. Uh, you find that in the 1880s, 1870s as an American dish. That's a general American thing. Are, are uh, funnel cakes at all Pennsylvania Dutch or is that a tourist thing? Uh, funnel cakes, well, it has become a tourist thing. It's a very interesting story, to be honest with you. Um, Trichterkuchen, as it's pronounced in Pennsylvania Dutch. Uh, in, in Germany and in Switzerland, where uh, they're made, it's essentially something done at New Year's or Christmas. All right? It's a fat cake. It's something, again, it's fried. It's sugar. You've got to have eggs. And remember, in the old days, uh, eggs, chickens stopped laying eggs in the wintertime. We've, we've trained them. We fool them into laying eggs all year around, but in cold weather they stop laying, or it would be intermittent. And eggs had to be stored in isinglass, in big, uh, isinglass is this miserable material that you put the eggs in to, to keep them fresh. So eggs stored that way don't beat very well, so you can't make good cakes and things. And I'm, diver I'm diverging here off of uh, Trichterkuchen, but the reason that the, the funnel cake was so special is because only very uh, wealthy people could afford the butter and all of the ingredients you needed to eat them for Christmas time. This was a Christmas food in Pennsylvania as well up until about 1950. And what happened, the, uh, some women at the Kutztown Folk Festival uh, at one of the Granges wanted to raise money for the Grange and one of the women had a recipe for funnel cakes. And she said, we can make good money this way. By the 1950s, of course, we've got poultry businesses with eggs are cheap, not the way they used to be. And uh, so the, the women got, to, there were about five of them, and they, they made uh, funnel cakes and sold them for 25 cents a piece. And they just sold them as fast as they could make them. And by the way, they're not doing them in a, in a regular uh, deep fryer for for donuts or something like that, they were using an old fryer for French fries. I mean, they really improvised this whole thing on the spot. Well, this took off. They made money. And then suddenly, the, uh, the funnel cake becomes associated with the festival. And then uh, one of the women associated with that grange decides, I think her name is Reinhardt, Alice Reinhardt, she decides that she's going to make a, a a truck and go around to all the different festivals all over the state and sell funnel cakes and she's become the funnel cake queen. And so since 1950 this funnel cake has gone from a Christmas specialty dish 
There's something you find everywhere. Anytime there's a fair now, you find funnel cakes, and everyone thinks it's a Pennsylvania Dutch thing. Well, not really, because you can find them in India, you can find them in Spain. They're all over the world, and they, have, they, they all have their own regional names, but they're all basically the same thing, this batter deep fried. You have a chapter on the groundhog. And you say that a reasonable argument could be made that it is probably a lot healthier as a food than hamburgers, french fries, pizza, or even chicken McNuggets. For certain, groundhog has better flavor. It does. First of all, let's, let's start with one point about the groundhog himself or herself. Um, they're vegetarians. They don't eat garbage. <laughs> they, they, eat very, they eat the best things in your kitchen garden if they manage to break in. Um, so they're, they're connoisseurs of, of green things. Free they're, range. <laughs> exactly, free range. They, uh, they're very clean animals. They have two holes. One is where they live and one is where they use as an outhouse. So uh, in terms of, of cleanliness, they're certainly not like a raccoon, which will eat just about anything. Uh, the best groundhogs, and now I've eaten groundhogs, so I'm speaking from firsthand experience, are the young ones in the spring. And uh, if you prepare groundhog, I have a recipe or two. In, in the, well, I have directions for cooking them anyway. But in any case, if you prepare them right, you can serve them uh, to people and tell them that it's veal. And they'll, they'll absolutely believe that it's veal. It tastes like veal. It looks like veal. <coughs> I've, eaten, I've eaten muskrat. So uh, I can tell you, it's not like muskrat. <laughs> <laughs> um, you, you read about hex signs. Are hex signs Pennsylvania Dutch, or is that something that was invented? Actually, uh, there's a new book just out by Patrick Donmoyer from the Pennsylvania German Cultural Heritage Center at Kutztown University on hex signs. Uh, I have one on the cover of my book, but I, I used a hex sign that um, is red, white, and blue. It's an American theme. I, I, I wanted to sort of focus on that whole thing about uh, shoe fly pie being American and, and Pennsylvania Dutch culture being American. Uh, these uh, images were decorative. They had very ancient symbolic meaning. I'm not an expert on hex signs. They certainly weren't put on barns to scare away witches. Why advertise the fact that you even believe in witches by putting things on your barn? Um, so um, the idea that they're hex signs, hex means uh, hex are witches in German. So that's where this word comes from. Uh, let's just call them barn stars. They were ornamental. They were part of the folk art tradition because you can find these, uh, these images on Frachter, uh, and that's the hand-painted art. You can find it on furniture, on dishes. It's just very, very old symbolism. And yes, it probably goes back to the ancient Celtic solar uh, image. It probably, it, in fact, it does. It's calendrical. It's, it's a solar wheel. And you're dividing the universe up into um, the, the seasons and what have you. So it's a, it's, a, it's a symbolic thing. But it doesn't have anything to do with witchcraft. Is the Pennsylvania Dutch culture kind of staying together? I mean, the, a next generation of Pennsylvania Dutch feel that they're Pennsylvania Dutch, or is it being assimilated? I, I think the, uh, it, it's a two-edged sword. 
the answer to that question. On, on one level, the old people think that the, 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 the food is dying out because the, the, all the old family-style restaurants have been closing. And, uh, and I, I list some of them, you know, Walps in, in Allentown, what have you, because that's where everybody used to go to get their Dutch cooking. I, I think what we're looking at today is a transformation that's taking place. The, the cuisine is, is, is going to move from these family-style restaurants into something rather high-end and very specialized. What's happened all over the world is that peasant cooking has become the high-class cooking because it's free-range, it's from, fresh from the farm, it's becoming the expensive food. And uh, so the, uh, in terms of food, there's a big change afoot in the culture. It, what's interesting is that the um, young people, young Pennsylvania Dutch kids, are, are, are looking at their roots in a completely different way than they did years ago. You have to realize, if you grew up in the 20s, you were told that because you were Pens in school, because you're Pennsylvania Dutch, you're dumb. You're not allowed to speak Dutch in school. My great-grandmother was beaten in front of the other students for speaking Dutch in her school by the teacher, actually whipped her. This left a very painful scar on her personality the rest of her life. She was made to swear also on a Bible that she would never speak Dutch again in front of the students, you see. So there was, there was this kind of, of uh, persecution going on, if you will, a sort of underhanded or backhanded persecution in the schools, so that the Dutch themselves looked down on their culture, and they were ashamed of it. And as I interviewed an old, uh, an old fellow who was a professor at um, Ursinus College, he learned Dutch secretly. His parents had a store. He learned to speak Dutch because he handled the farmers who came in. But his parents wouldn't let him speak Dutch because they thought it would, quote unquote, hold him back. Now there's a big change. There are Pennsylvania Dutch classes at different universities, at Millersville, at Kutztown, schools that were set up to get rid of the Dutch culture in the first place. There's been a whole 180 degree change here, and it's probably for the better, but it's, uh, all cultures change, nothing sits still. So what the future has in mind for the Dutch, I don't know. Um, certainly, the Amish are not preserving the culture at all. They speak the worst of the dialect. Um, it's all, uh, it's all in intermingled with English. Um, they're changing the, the gender of nouns to fe feminine. So all the, all the, instead of having Pennsylvania Dutch, good Pennsylvania Dutch has, has uh, neuter female and, and male nouns, just like standard German or Latin or your other uh, French or Spanish, you know, they also have um, genders for their nouns. The Amish are turning it all into feminine. So, um, and it, and they're wording, they're wording the ger their, their spoken dialect as though it's English, but they're using the, the, the Dutch word. So it's all a, it's sort of a hodgepodge. Um, but you see, they speak the language uh, not because they're, they're trying to preserve the culture, but because they're trying to keep outsiders. Uh, it's, it's like a wall. It's, it's we, they kind of thing. So the language for them is a barrier. And, it, and so it's, it's, it's being used for a completely different re reason than, let's say, the uh, Pennsylvania Dutch in Berks County who speak Dutch amongst themselves at the market, just uh, friends among friends, that kind of thing. And do their children now speak Pennsylvania Dutch at the See, market? See, a lot of children didn't because their parents wouldn't 
teach them Dutch so they could speak Dutch amongst themselves and talk about things they didn't want the kids to learn. Now it's, it's, it's the young people who don't have this, A, they don't have the prejudice against the Dutch that was, that was part of the school system in the, in, and the novels, all the books were written that came out about the Dutch in the 19-teens and 20s were all about these dumb Dutch, Tilly the Mennonite maid, you know. Um, uh, it, it, the same theme is this Amish reality program on TV, of Breaking Amish or something like that, uh, of leaving this, this culture and coming into the world. All of that has changed, and the young people don't, don't have any of these prejudices anymore, so they're curious about their background, they're curious about the food. This book is selling extremely well among the Pennsylvania Dutch. It's kind of a vindication, finally. Somebody has said what they've been thinking all along, but, but with the young kids, it's cool to speak Dutch. And this is what happened in Wales, you know, for a long time. Welsh was almost extinct, then it became cool among the young people. And the same in Ireland, where I studied in Ireland at, at University College. That's where I took my degree. And Irish almost disappeared. But it, it, when the young people found out that it was cool and they could speak Irish and their parents didn't know what they were saying, you see, <laughs> it works. And then the culture just pops back up again. So um, these, uh, it, there, are, there are curves here, you ups speak, and downs. You speak Pennsylvania Dutch? I, I, I grew up. Uh, beside my grandfather speaking Pennsylvania Dutch. I also learned standard German. So when I'm in Germany and I can't think of a word, I throw in Dutch and that just, it's like a lefty. They just, what? <laughs> what did you say? Because <laughs> we use words, well, you know, uh, the, the Pennsylvania Dutch word, for example, for railroad is literally the, Amer the English uh, railroad, regelweg, railway, okay? And that's not the word used in German. And, uh, and they just hoot and laugh when they hear these terms coming out of my mouth. But yes, I can speak Dutch. Oh, when do you have opportunity? Ich kann Deutsch <laughs> When do you have opportunity to use it? I don't. That's one of the problems. But now that I'm interviewing more, more older people, I can speak Dutch with them. And when I interview them, I let them talk in Dutch if they want, because I can always transcribe it. I, I record the, the uh, interviews. So that, the, these interviews will all be housed someday at Kutztown University in the Cultural Heritage Center. It's sort of a, a monument to all this field work that I've been doing, I guess. Uh, it should be preserved because a lot of these people have wonderful food memories and the stories that they tell about themselves. You know, it's very hard to get people to talk about their food memories when, in fact, they grew up during the Depression. And, and one lady, um, they, was very reluctant to talk about the fact that uh, they were they were so poor they didn't own a farm they had to rent and they moved around because the farms kept going up for sale and uh, she had brothers that hunted and yes they ate raccoon a lot and they ate pigeons because pigeons were free they were in the barn uh, a lot of people don't want to talk about that but once they open up I wanted to know how they cooked the raccoon first of all and and what did they do with the squab etc cetera, etc cetera. so once you get them rolling, the stories come out, and, and this, is, this is part of real American history, and it needs to be preserved. What number book is this for you? Sixteen. I'm working on four more right now. All on Pennsylvania Dutch? Oh, no. I'm, I'm working on a book about medieval Cyprus, so you'll have to do a show out of Nicosia sometime. <laughs> How many of your books are food-focused? I would say they're all essentially focused on food in some way or the other. I've done garden books or 
books about heirloom vegetables, uh, my heirloom vegetable gardening, uh, was about the uh, what are heirloom vegetables and, and uh, how do we get them, how do we grow them, but also there's a food theme uh, worked into that. Uh, I think I don't want to do another garden book, but I'd, I'm probably going to do um, more food. I'd like to do a, another big, col full-color um, culinary book. I did Pennsylvania Dutch Country Cooking back in the 90s, and that's the one that um, got the cookbook awards and what have you. We only have a couple of minutes left, but if you were to prepare a, a, a feast, like a Christmas meal or some major Pennsylvania Dutch meal using things in your book, what would it look like? Oh. Well, that's, that's three days' work right there. <laughs> uh, I would certainly, uh, I would, oh, that's, that's a good, I, I think I would have a, a, a roast of pork with the Grubenkraut, that is a, a, another type of sauerkraut, um, stewed with coriander seeds, I would have that. Um, I'd have to think about that menu. I, I would definitely have gingerbreads. We have a number of, oh, Christmas shoe fly pie. That's made with honey and almonds. It's completely different than the, the normal shoe fly pie. Um, I, ha I would have apple soup, sure, because um, that was an old traditional dish. Because the 24th of December is Adam and Eve Day. And you don't eat apples on Adam and Eve Day, but you have apple soup for Christmas in memory of that apple from the tree. <laughs> and uh, what do you do when you're not writing books? I'm working in my garden. That's why I'm suntan. <laughs> and it's been a beastly summer for gardens. I have a, about an acre of a kitchen garden. I grow about 4,000 heirloom varieties of, of plants, food plants. How much of your own food do you grow? I, I probably don't do much shopping at the store during the summer. I, of course, if I make sauerkraut, I do a lot of preserving, pickles. Half of my, at least half of my food comes from my own garden. And you said you're writing four additional books now? Yes. What are they on? Cypress, you said? Uh, yeah, Medieval Cypress. I'm doing a, a, another book similar to this one, but on Philadelphia. Each chapter will be a, a piece of the Philadelphia food story. I'd like to do a three-volume history of Philadelphia foods, but I don't think anybody wants to spend that kind of money. But the story's really complicated. The city's an interesting food town. Uh, so there's Philadelphia, there's my Cypress book. I'm, I want to do a book, uh, I've outlined a book, in fact, on, uh, I'm, I'm, it's ephemeral du jour, the ephemer ephemerities of the day, foods of the golden moment. Uh, I'm going to be giving a paper at the Sorbonne in Paris in April on this idea of eating food that's uh, so rare that you only have it, a window of opportunity for maybe a week or two. Uh, ramps would be a good example of that in America where they're only in in a certain season and they're extremely expensive in the restaurants. And these rare wild things that used to be common everyday food for country people are now the, the gilded food for the elite. So I'm going to be writing about that. Well, we are out of time. We've been speaking with William Woyce Weaver. He is the author of this book, As American as Shoe Fly Pie. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me.
You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.